Hi, I'm Maris, and I'm a book person. Books are my career and my hobby, both my obsession and my cure for anxiety. I'm also a pop culture junkie. TV and film and music are as essential to me as literature, and I've found that most authors I know and admire feel the very same way. We tend to think of writers of literary fiction and nonfiction as producing high culture, but culture is fluid. The majority of great authors have a wide variety of influences, from Proust to the Real Housewives franchise. Guests will talk about the ways in which a wide variety of culture affects their own work, because very few authors live in bubbles without TV and internet. I hope the format will allow for both profundity and great silliness. Delighted and honored to have Mira Jacob be the very first guest on the Maris Review. Thank you so much for being here. I'm delighted and honored to be here, so thank you for having me. Yeah. Mira is the author of the novel The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing and the very recently published graphic memoir Good Talk. Do you want to tell us a little about the book? Yes. Good yeah. Talk. Yes. Yes. Um, Okay, so Good Talk is, it's a funny, it's a graphic memoir, and the and the reason that I sort of started um, working in that vein as opposed to, you know, I'd been a novel writer for yeah. a long time, but my, my son, when he was six, sort of um, fell into this very deep Michael Jackson obsession. I remember from the internet. You remember from the internet. And, and that also, by the way, means a really different thing now. You yeah, know. absolutely. Um, Even in the past couple of exactly, weeks. Exactly, exactly. And we can get to that. But at the time, what it meant was he was staring at all of these Michael Jackson album covers all day, every day, <clears throat> while he was practicing his moves, of course. And, um, and then these natural questions sort of came up for him. And a lot of them were really funny, like did he lose his other glove and <laughs> is that how people really walk on the moon and then some of them though were really baffling like he asked um is michael jackson brown or is he white and i said well he's black but he sort of <laughs> turned white <laughs> and he says he turned white and i said yeah and he said are you gonna turn white and i was like no and he goes am i and i was like no <laughs> And he goes, Daddy? And I was like, Daddy's already white. He goes, but was he always? And it was just like, I was like, oh, great. I've ruined my child for the rest of his life. And so those were the those were kind of the great, funny questions. But then, kind of interspersed with those, he was just asking these very sort of, you know, chirpy questions about racism from an alien. I mean, that's really what it felt like. It was like, are white people afraid of brown people? You know, just like, what? Absolutely. Did you just ask me that? And... um and the following question after are white people afraid of brown people is, was, um, is daddy afraid of us? And it had just never occurred to me that he was going to be asking those questions. He was asking them at the same moment that everything was happening with the Ferguson protests on TV. So he was seeing some of that stuff, um, no matter how quickly we would try to turn everything off, you know, kids, they just absorb a lot. 
Right. You talk about that in the book a lot, um, that that these things just, especially now in the culture, it's just unavoidable. It is. And I think there's this fantasy. um, There's a fantasy that you have both before you're a parent, and I, I sometimes think long after you've been a parent, that you can just control more things mm. than you can. Mm-hmm. And so I often hear um, from older, frankly, white women, you know, I, I don't know if this is a good thing for you to be talking about with him, as though there were an option. Right. What else were you going to do? And as though there was some world that I was introducing him to that they themselves weren't making possible. Right. So... um yeah, so I started doing the thing where I would write an essay, you know, write an essay about this feeling. Yes. That's helpful. And so, but every time I was writing it, I got really nervous because I started imagining what the comments would be in response to this essay. The kiss of death. The kiss of death, exactly. <laughs> the minute, the minute, the you, minute you, yeah. you start thinking about that. It's true. The minute you you think about the comments, you might as well just, just go home and go to bed. <laughs> um, and And I knew that even trying to make, like, trying to explain the reality of our lives has always been so impossible because it seems both over dramatic and cliched and trite. It seems like all the things you never want to be as a writer. Yep. And then, so instead of doing that, I drew us on printer paper and I cut <laughs> us out and I put us on top of the albums. And then I just started drawing our conversation in sort of beats yeah. over the album covers. And then I stood on my dining room table and took pictures of them which is kind of the least scientifically exact way to do that. So if you ever need to take pictures that way, don't. Just don't do that. Your feet will get in the pictures. <laughs> and then I cut them, and I sent them to um, – actually sent them to Saeed Jones first um, at BuzzFeed and said, I'm doing this thing. Would you put it out? And he said yes. I remember that. Mm-hmm. And, and the BuzzFeed um, piece went – Viral. It went crazily viral. And I and I had a feeling it would because I had a feeling that this was one of those moments where there are many of us that go through this. There were many of us maybe not everybody had a child who was obsessed with Michael Jackson and had to position it that way, but there <laughs> right. were there were many of us being asked questions that we both wanted to be able to answer and also felt completely unable to answer in any sort of way that preserves a childhood. And how do you get beyond what's taboo and just reassure your kid? Yeah. There's that too, right? Like what do you how do you how do you have an honest conversation with your child about things that are scary enough to scare you? Mhm. There there's one part of the book that I loved in particular um which is you and your writing friends, um, Tanwing and Caitlin. Yeah, Tanwing and Caitlin, yeah. Kind of providing like a, a Greek chorus kind of thing with blank expressions on all of your faces that can kind of just change depending on what the context is. Um, and it was very much like, a, what do we do? Yeah. It was, you know, Thunny and Caitlin were sort of amazing in the course of writing this because there were so many times when I felt scared. And there were so many times when I felt like I'm doing something that's going to damage me and it's going to damage my family and why am I doing this? And 
And I would sort of lose um, my focus or my nerve or just say to them, America is going to hate me. You know, like America is a single person, <laughs> like America is a guy at a dance. Anyway, I would say this to them and they would say, but there's us. There are so many of us out there that are dealing with this. Just keep remembering that there's us. Um, and it was really helpful to put them in the book after a while because they were so much of the sort of Greek chorus of my conscience, too. They mm. they were the ones that were allowing me to experience my life as real. And I, I can imagine that... Or I don't have to imagine because in the book, things go from bad to worse when it seems like such an off chance that you-know-who, we're not going to say... Yeah. Um, would become president right. and that the things that he stood for would stand for what Americans stood for. And there are no good answers there. Yeah, there are no good answers there. And I think, you know, that was certainly my experience of it. This, um, I absolutely had thought, you know, this, this man is representing um, a kind of a very a very specific point of view that is so vitriolic and so cruel and so entitled. And that's not really what the, the country is going to be about. And I thought that despite, you know, it's sort of, it's interesting for me to now look back and sort of parse through how, yes. um, how much my fantasy was informed by my privilege. Right. Mm -hmm. So I thought about that. I thought that despite, um, seeing what was happening in the Black Lives Matter movement and despite seeing how Muslims were being treated and despite seeing the ways in which, you know, Mexicans were being talked about and and all of this and, you know, being right adjacent to all of that, but still also holding fast to the fantasy of, of the good people of America. Absolutely. And I, and it was a surprise. Um, it was a shock um, for for me, certainly, and for my family. But the hardest part about that really was that it split our family. And I don't want to I don't want to spoil anything, but um, your husband is Jewish, mm -hmm. and his parents are longtime Republicans. Mm -hmm. And do they still support Trump to this day? They do, and they did. Um, they they did the whole time. Um, we stopped being able to talk about it at some point. And I should say, these are people that I have, I have been in that family for 20 years. They love you. They love me. They love your son. They love my son. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> they love my son and they love my husband. They love all of us. Mm -hmm. They're very good parents to my husband. They are very good grandparents to my, my son. And also they managed to sort of spout the same Fox News, mm. you know, information at me all the time. And, um, and you know, I didn't, I didn't go into, in the book, I didn't, um, there were certain conversations that we had that I didn't put in because I, I felt like the thing sure. that I was willing to be public about is the thing that they were public about because they were right. they were holding signs for Trump on the street corner. They were active supporters. Mm -hmm. So it was really just the idea of how can you support this man and knowing what's the way that that's going to affect my life and your mm -hmm. grandson's life. And the, the truth is, is that they didn't know, but... 
The corollary to that is, they will never know, because it is happening to us right now. And no matter what we say to them, their support doesn't waver. So there's a, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a way in which I think people protect themselves from, from this kind of, you know, from this kind of action that they make in the world where Mm -hmm. they say, well, whatever's happening, it's not, maybe it's not exactly what's happening or it's not, you know, it doesn't have to do with our vote and it doesn't have to do with this and it does it's not us. Right. Right. Our vote has nothing to do with that. We voted for him for tax reasons. Mm-hmm. And somehow they're voting for him for tax reasons they believe gives them an innocence in terms of what it does to our lives. And it doesn't. Have Have they received a copy of the book? Yeah, absolutely. And they've absolutely. read it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because when I, when I first read the book uh, months ago now, my first inclination was I wanted to send it to everyone who was on the fence or was voting for Trump but was quote-unquote good. Yeah. Because I felt like you made such a compelling argument um, about how it affects people negatively, how 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 racism is bad, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that's just more liberal... Yeah. Media. That's I mean, stuff. I will tell you, that's that's a fantasy. The fantasy Ugh. that you could send it to someone and change their mind about him is that's just not going to happen. Um, and I've had to let go of that fantasy, too. I didn't write the book to change mm-hmm. their minds because I understood that I wasn't going to. And that heartbreak is real for me. Mm-hmm. The fact that there is nothing about our lives and our past that matter enough to them to change that is heartbreaking. I say that in the same breath that I tell you that they love me. It's not about love. Right. You know, I mean, I think that's, to me, that's the kind of biggest misconception about racism is I think people think, well, if, you know, if you're racist, that means you don't love that person. That's just not true. You can love them very much and find a thousand ways to oppress them and walk away from the knowledge that you're doing it. You will continue to do that if it behooves you. And certainly they've never had to think through, what am I doing? Is this racist? Because there's an idea probably of what a racist is. Absolutely. Actually, you know what? Um, Rebecca Carroll wrote this really smart piece. And I I was quoting it today because she talks about how in the 60s – you know, there was a sort of this idea of what a racist looked like was a, you know, a KKK member. Right. And, and if you're not wearing a white sheet. Yes, absolutely. And if you're not wearing that white sheet and if you're not um, actively saying, I hate this person, that there's no way in which you could be racist. And what she was saying is, you know, they people don't realize that it has nothing to do with whether or not you love someone. You can go about your life. Yes. And your whiteness can afford you the opportunity to wreck a million lives around you. Mm -hmm. And if you decide simply not to acknowledge that, that doesn't make you less racist. It doesn't make you less racist. It just makes you unwilling to see what you're doing. And so Z, your son, is now 11? He's 10 now. He's 10. Mm -hmm. And, And so what is he into these days? Yes. I mean, so I should give background when when Mira talks about when you talk about um, doing Michael Jackson. 
I will never forget watching videos of your son doing the moonwalk in full gear and thinking this is an incredibly talented kid <laughs> and like a baby who, who really gets it. He was a baby who really got it. He felt it in his bones. He sure did. Um, yeah. You know, what's funny is so he, um, according to him, we've ruined his life by not letting him have Fortnite. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. Um, but the, the other part of that is that he uh, makes a lot of music right now. We got him this crazy synthesizer. And so basically <laughs> he's awesome. like, he runs home, he puts on his beats, he's like starts up his thing, he's got his headphones on, and then he opens his bedroom door and does the, like, does the sort of DJ waving motion to all of us Mira's in the house. Mira's waving her hands. Yes, I'm waving and my hands. I, I'm, I'm ready he, for the break. Exactly. <laughs> so he makes that motion to us, and all of us, meaning me, my husband, and possibly the cat, are supposed <laughs> to follow that motion and wave back to him. It's like we're... We're the club. He's the DJ. You're at the club. Yeah. He's doing his thing. Um, and some of them are really good, so sometimes we do end up dancing. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> like a weird, it's a weird family jam. Um, but yeah, he's really into that, and, and he's really curious, man. He is a curious, curious kid. He's been asking me tons of questions about all of this, and he yeah. is also like his father, and I found this was true of his father, apparently... Jed started reading the New York Times when he was eight and just would read it cover to cover, not understanding half of it. Sure. And he's a bit like that. Like, he's a little bit of a news junkie. He comes home from school and he wants to talk about, like, what happened today? Tell me what's going on. Tell me about the Mueller file. Like, you know, just the whole thing. And this is pre-getting him on social media, I assume. Yeah, no, he's not allowed to be on social media, right? Wow. And 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 still probably feeling overwhelmed by information. For sure. And there's a lot of things that we have to talk about. There's a lot of things, you know, I think like his biggest worry right now is um, is the environment. And, sure. Um, and just his level of horror about that is real. And again, it's there's no answer for no. that. I, too, am horrified. I, too, mm -hmm. am scared. So it's sort of like, what do we, how do we talk about it? The way that I have decided to talk to him about all of this stuff yes. is to simply answer the questions he asks as opposed to furthering the information. Sure. Because there are so many dark <laughs> calls so many I could different ways. Yeah, walk down. So I just try to answer the question he's asking me so we can sort of parse back from there. Oh. And has he watched protest movements? and For sure. Of yes. He watches the movements. He sometimes goes with us on marches. I mean... When he wants to, he's allowed to come. So, um, and he's, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, he's, it's really kind of interesting to watch how many freedoms he's growing up with. Like in his school, there's a, you know, a sort of a gay student alliance and that's, and it's for, it's not just for students that think that they might be gay. It's for people who want to support people who might be gay. So it's, you know, like just... His conception of how things work is much more community-oriented, and he's much less siloed than I ever was. That's lovely. Yeah, no, that really. Is actually real if there's a hopeful takeaway. Oh, I have so much hope in the generations that are coming up. They are so smart. They are so curious. They are so unwilling to be kind of patted on the head and dismissed, and I think that is fantastic. Absolutely. Um, and now moving on to the more Maris review questions. Yes, please. I want to know what you're into. 
So what are yeah. you reading right now? Yes. Okay. Um, last night, I just... So I did a reading last night with KSA Lehman and Mitch Jackson and Carissa Chen. It was so much fun. It was an incredible reading. And I've read heavy... I'm going to say like six or seven times all the way through. I thought it it's was... amazing. It's amazing. It's an amazing... Did you read yes, it? Yes, I, I did. Just, I did. Oh, my God. I... I just found that book so moving. And also, though, just pulling it apart for structure, pulling it apart for point of view, time, all of that stuff is really fascinating. And I hadn't heard. I had read the, um, the Residue Years, Mitch's Residue Years, but I went home last night with his um, new book, Survival Math, and I just started reading it. It is so well-paced and so raw in a really kind of specific and generous way. He's a generous... He sure is. Yeah, he's got he's, a generous positioning of a heart, right? So everything that he writes comes from this kind of real sense of humanity, which I love. Um, I have to pick that up, too. It, it is on my bio. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, I love following his... his Absolutely. ...journey. And you know what is out today, actually, which I'm what? so psyched about, is um, Kali Fajardo Anstein's... Sabrina and Karina, do you know about no. this? Oh my God! Okay, it's um, she's a Chicana writer and she's based in Denver, and it's a series of short stories, and they are so beautiful. And it's also sort of from the area that I grew up in. I grew up in New Mexico. She's in Denver, but there are some similarities and the culture. I definitely recognize parts of it, not from the inside, but from the outside. So it's really beautiful to get to see it in this specific way. And she's just. Man, she's a badass. I really love her work. And then the other one that I'm really so I okay, so I read now you're gonna find out. You're gonna you're about to find out that I have a bad problem in that I read like three or four books at a time. I, I do you do that? I too? am envious. Yes. Okay. I mean I try to. <laughs> oh, I can't ever stick with one because I just always have one in a bag. So the other one that I'm in the middle of is um Maurice Carlos Riffin's um We Cast a Shadow. I love that book. Okay. Did you? Did you love it? I mean it's dark yeah yeah <laughs> but it, it's certainly another I, th I think it's a companion book to yours and it's, it what seems not like, to do there you go <laughs> like it's so I mean I'm just so excited about the premise and I also just think um so far I've just really loved the sort of the pacing and just the sentences alone I've been like right good so those are the ones that I'm really you know excellent into right now yeah and anything else? Are you watching anything you love? Or oh, listening? we did the thing where we watched all of Russian Doll. Oh yeah, in a couple sittings. Yeah, yeah. I haven't. You know what's funny is um, when I am drawing, it takes so much time mm -hmm. that I don't watch things. I listen to a lot of books on tape. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like what? What, so, what was the best one? To... Oh yeah. Um, I really loved um. Matt Johnson's Loving Day. Oh. Did you read that? No. Read? That one was really good. There were so many, though. I I mean, I, I feel like I could have a soundtrack of every book that I read while I was while I was doing this. Oh, I also, um, Victor Laval's The Changeling. Yes. Okay, that one scared the hell out That's of me. so scary. Because I was drawing alone in this sort of haunted carnival workspace that I have that already, <laughs> I'm sure, has ghosts. Like, there's definitely a ghost Where in there. Where is it? Oh, at Powder Keg. Oh, so, okay. So Powder Keg, is this crazy? I don't I don't know if it's even going to exist anymore. The building is shut down right now, oh, which no. is not surprising because every day when I would get on the elevator, I'd be like, 
I may not make it out of this elevator alive, but at least I'll go having done the thing I loved. It's um, <laughs> it's this crazy space that's run by a guy who maybe has a little hoarding problem, and Ooh. it's filled with old props. So, like, my desk was right next to one of those um, horses that you'd see sort of in a carousel, like, and all of these 1940s, those those pictures where the head is cut out, and so you put your face in. Did you, were you just constantly putting your face in things? I mean, it like... was, I was constantly wandering around the space being like, there's another bit of detritus from another dimension. Let me play with that. Um, but that space was definitely also, you know, I would be alone there. I would work when I was drawing the book because I was teaching myself to draw in the same moment that oh I was. Gosh. What I was, so I was trying to figure that out. Yeah. I knew how to draw on paper. I should, right. I should back up and tell you. I knew how to draw on paper. I didn't know how to draw on a screen. And the difference is quite jarring because paper has a personality. So when you're rubbing against huh. it, there's friction, right? Sure. There's like something that you're hitting up against. And so it's got limits. And also you can't erase because you'll tear your paper. You kind of just have to, you have a different relationship with paper. Almost like e-books, huh? And paper yes, books. It is. And yeah, you have to, you have... you have to get, yes, exactly. And then the other part of that, which is crazy, is that if you don't have that friction, it's like learning to um, ice skate without ice under you. You're sort of carving space without without pushing out against anything. So finding my personality in there there was like it took a while. It took about a year to like just drawing and experimenting and trying to find where my personality was in that place, right? So anyway, which is to say I spent a lot of time alone <laughs> in the haunted carnival space. And and I was definitely like, there are ghosts. And Victor Laval's The Changeling was the one book that I was like, I That's cannot, terrifying. No, I cannot do this anymore. It has to be bright daylight and there have to be people <laughs> around me. <laughs> There's one more piece that actually I wanted to tell please, you about. Please, please tell me. Because it's, um, it's only online. Um, yes. Which is um, Emily Rubto. Yes. Wrote this piece called Climate Signs. Yes. Have you read this? Yes. I think that's so stunning. I think it's so fascinating because what I love about it is that there's visual information and it's also this sort of triptych and it's talking about something I frankly am terrified of, which um, is, you know, global warming. But she comes at it both like as a mother and as an artist and as somebody who is sort of uniquely primed to take in an incredible amount of information and give it back to you in ways that make sense for your brain. I love that piece. I've also read that maybe four or five times, just pulling it apart. And I actually talked to her editor on that. Where where was it published? Um, that's published at the um, New York Review of Books. Okay, you know what I loved about that? Seeing that piece was so great because it gave me this idea of how we can be using visual information mm -hmm. in a really different way, in a really kind of literary way that was really, it was fun but it also sort of let my mind enter the piece in a different angle every shot that she took was taking pictures of this art that had been placed all over new york and she would get also a shot of a human and you would inevitably be split between the thing that you were supposed to be looking at and then the, the world person, around it yeah. and the person you didn't know where to look and it felt like the exact psychic underpinning of trying to understand global warming. And I was so stunned. I was super psyched about that piece. Love it. Um, I did want to ask you one, one, yeah, yeah. one more thing. Um, 
because you very recently had a popular thread on Twitter yeah, about your experience. You were talking on a panel at AWP, which is the American Writers Program. Yeah, Writing Program. Um, conference. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the experience of doing that and, and what you learned yes. and what you, yes. So that was a really interesting panel. Um, it had the funniest name, which was like, let's talk about race, baby. Um, but that panel, again, with Ms. Mitch Jackson, um, one of the things that happened in that panel, we were talking about how race had affected our lives as writers and what that really looked like. And I, you know, I ran a reading series um, out of Pete's Candy Store for yeah. years. I have been writing in this town in New York since 1998. I have been actively trying to publish since that time. Mm-hmm. I had my first novel published in 2014. That was not from lack of putting stories out. It was not from lack of trying and, you know, and always kind of seeing what was being published around me and also, you know, trying to kind of figure out where is my voice in it. But the thing that was most often told to me was, you know, what's so crazy about your stories is they're like, they're not really Indian. They're like, they're like some other thing, except like maybe you should maybe it should be a little more Indian. So then I would go and try to write something that was quote unquote more, more Indian. Indian, and then I would give it to them like you know it's just it's kind of too Indian. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Yeah, that seems um, like yeah, it was great. Um, but the thing that happened in that panel, and one of the things that I was talking about was this idea that so much of what's happening right now in publishing is this sort of great. I mean, honestly, I kind of want to call it the Great White Awakening, where <laughs> all the people, the 87% of people, of white people that are running publishing, because that's the real numbers, right, yes. have suddenly been mortified by, among other things, the election of this president, mm-hmm. into a sort of deep introspection where they're saying, how did it get this way? And then they're saying, oh, maybe it's our fault. Perhaps. Maybe, perhaps. Perhaps it is our fault. So they're having this moment, and in that moment... They're trying to find a lot of writers of color, quote unquote. Right, right, right. right. That's that's the way to fix it all. Right. If you find a bunch right, right away. Find a bunch right away. And by the way, like whether that actually measures out into any real numbers of people of color getting published remains to be seen. Who knows? But there's a little bit of a panic around this. Let's find yes. let's find the person of color. And I and I hear it all the time as I was walking around AWP and I heard I overheard people saying, Well, we're really trying to find writers of color, but we can't find any, which, you know, that's me <laughs> slapping my forehead. Um so, but what I what I was saying in that thread was I was one of these people that had been writing forever and that was told that this will not happen, you know, we can't we can't publish you. Right. I also kept writing my novel for ten years in that same time. I wrote it from eleven o'clock at night till one in the morning. There was no reason for me to ever believe that was gonna get published. Not with the amount of re- rejections that were coming back. I did it because I really believed in that story and I had this great moment happened in that when we went out with it, it went up for auction. And what mm-hmm. that means is that there were multiple people that were that were bidding on it. And what that means is that I got to go talk to editors about <laughs> what they would do, what they would do to my book and say, you know, well, what is it that you think? What is it that you feel? How do you feel? And I had a lot of really good talks that week with a lot of very smart people. But there's one talk that will haunt me for the rest of my life, which is that we walked into um, an office and the woman 
who was interviewing me or, you know, we were talking to each other and she said, you know, this is a great book. We love this book. It's a great book. Uh, I kind of call this an everything but the kitchen sink book. You've really thrown everything in here. Um, so, you know, obviously we'd have to make some cuts. And I said, well, what are the cuts? And she said, well, you know, you just have, I mean, listen, you've got an immigrant story. You've got a political story. You've got a ghost story. You've got a family tragedy. I mean, you know, obviously some of that has to go. And I said, well, which, <laughs> which would go? And she said, well, anything that's not important. I said, well, what's the most important then? Right. And she said, well, obviously the immigrant story. Obviously. And it was this crazy moment because I felt, I actually felt my heart like drop out of my body. And I kicked my agent under the table. I gave her a little like kick on the ankle. <laughs> and she um, and she kind of nodded at me. And we finished the rest of that that particular meeting. But we walked out in the hallway and she turned to me and we said it to each other immediately. Nope. Not her. Not her. <laughs> no. Anyone but her. And she and she said, she's like, no, you don't. That's the wrong. That's the wrong person for this. And I had this great look of getting to choose someone else. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I had multiple people. But I have thought about that moment forever. I've thought about it forever because I think of all the writers that did not have another option that was the only person that was going to publish them. So they cut off whole parts of their bodies and stories and psyches and truths to fit through that very tiny door that that one person is going to allow them to move through. And as a result, somebody like me, who grew up without any literature to tell me who I was, I was crazy for books that even had the hint of an Indian American someone somewhere in there. I never saw myself. I never saw any lives that looked like mine. And what happens when you're living in that world? I just, I, I want us to parse back a little bit about what that means because what that actually means when you don't have those books is that you cannot imagine your own interiority because you get to think that your interiority is not something worth imagining. It's such a sad way to live. It's such a sad thing for me to know how many writers didn't make it through that door and how many things I never got to know about myself as a result. So when I was thinking about that the other day, I was thinking about all the women who, like me, were lost in that moment, in this great moment of the learning curve. And I was saying to them, keep going because your work is just as vital as it ever was. And it has always been vital. And this is not an industry of guaranteed outcomes. It's not. You can work your ass off and never get anywhere. That is just the truth. I have 20 years of that behind me. But you are the only person that can imagine your experience onto the page. You are the only person that knows the story that we have missed. You are the only person that can come and find yourself out here. And we need you out here. I want you to come out here. And I want all of those editors that are so giving so much lip service to diversity right now to, for a moment, look at all of those people around them that have been doing this work for years that they overlooked or they didn't see or they dismissed on their way to finding the hot 20-year-old that tells them <laughs> that they want to see. Look for those women. 
look for those people of color who have been writing and been trying for their lives to get out their truth. It is just as important that you find them as that you find the 20-year-old. It is more important for me, frankly. They're there. They're there. We've been They've always been there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.